0: Well, good morning, church family. All over the world now, hundreds of millions of believers are gathering in rooms like this, bigger, smaller, and the pastors are standing behind pulpits and they're proclaiming to their congregations, the congregations where they serve, He is risen, and the congregation replies, He is risen indeed. Again, He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. 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 Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we just want to extend a warm welcome to you. My name is Randy. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, there's a copy in the pouch in front of you. We would just love it if you could take a copy and put your name in it and just receive it as a gift from our church family. I'm going to be reading Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. You'll find that on pages 8, 34, and 8, 35 of your church Bibles. Now, from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is God's Word. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with someone from our church family, and I was telling a person about these verses. These verses are are Easter texts, I was saying, and The person responded to me, oh, well, that's the zombie passage. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? In fact, in our culture today, some are more likely to believe in zombies than the bodily resurrection of Christ. And then, wouldn't you know it, just this past week, my daughter-in-law told me about the groundbreaking scientific discovery from a Yale team no less. You know about it? NPR reported it. Here, here it is. Scientists restore some function in the brains of dead pigs. I'm not making this up. Look. See? (laughs) Left side, brains of dead pigs right side uh same brains I know it kind of looks a little bit like my molars and my last trip to the dentist i, I, I get that, but just to overlook that for just a minute, but i mean that's after that's what somewhat revived looks like after Yale had their hands on the 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 The, the, the article's been nicknamed frankenswine and uh, no, i'm not I'm not kidding you and so Here's the first line of the article. I mean, you can look it up. If things get a little slow here in the next few minutes, feel free to. It won't hurt my feelings. But but here's the first line. The brains of dead pigs have been somewhat revived by scientists hours after the animals were killed in a slaughterhouse. I did have a few questions like, what do they mean by somewhat revived, anyway? I couldn't help but think of Billy Crystal in The Princess Bride. Remember his character? There's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. <laughs> right? Mostly dead means slightly alive. Is that Matthew's point? What, what does Matthew expect us to believe about what he wrote? These are strange Verses, but let's be open. Let's be open. Let's, and let's be curious. Let's be led by curiosity here as we explore these verses. Strange? Yes. And some things are strange enough to be true. Well, in verse 45, you can see that Matthew leads us. First, into strange darkness. A strange darkness blankets the land. Verse 45 is a very simple sentence. It's a noun-verb sentence wrapped in dependent clauses. Now, from, overall until, attached to two words, darkness was. Just the opposite of Genesis 1. Light was. Reminiscent of Exodus and the plagues, the plague of darkness. Darkness was at noon, Matthew tells us, what is supposed to be the brightest portion of the day. At noon, for the next three hours, darkness was. And not only darkness, silence. Three hours of silence. When have you had five minutes of silence? Three hours. Of darkness and silence. Palm Sunday's joy over Jesus had been eclipsed by a tumultuous week ending in the darkness of injustice. Matthew says that from noon to 3 p.m., an eerie night like atmosphere shadowed the land. And at 3 p.m., a piercing scream shatters the silence. The crucified king speaks, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Matthew translates, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The king speaks to his father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? I've never forsaken you. Why would you forsake me? Jesus Forsaken by his country, forsaken by his disciples, forsaken by the crowds, and now his father. Jesus cries, and heaven replies with silence Do anything but ignore me. One of my privileges of being your pastor is to be with some of you in your most forsaken moments to somehow, as the Holy Spirit helps, to somehow give you comfort and to accompany you with a word and prayer, but mainly presence, so that you might know you're not alone. Others are hurting with you. You're not forsaken, but not Jesus. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus dies with no comfort, only comfortless mockery. Yes. He who was led into darkness is now led into mockery. He claims to be the son of God. He claims to save others, save yourself. Savior, deliver yourself, and then we will believe you. Come down off the cross, and then we will believe you. Oh, he's calling Elijah, the prophet who didn't die. What? Does he think Elijah will appear in an Uber and whisk him away to heaven? Let's see if that chariot shows up anyway. Come on. And and someone, one of the mockers now. One of the mockers. What's about to happen next is not an act of compassion. It is a scoffer, a mocker who takes a sponge, sticks it on the end of a stick, soaks it in sour wine, puts it up to Jesus' lips. Oh, you want some? Well, here. Whoop, <laughs> whoop. Come on, come on, Lena. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> That's what's going on here. That's what Matthew wants us to know. Jesus taunted with a sponge. When Christ was young, Magi worshipped him. Now mockers taunt him. And verse 50 speaks of one last scream. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. People usually don't die screaming. Not usually. People usually go unconscious and then they just fade away. Not Jesus. And Matthew doesn't say what he said, just how loud he said it. And he who was led into darkness and led into mockery is now led into death. He cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Silence, darkness, screaming, thirsting, mocking, screaming, death. Jesus, despised and rejected. The iniquity of the world was laid on him. The banished scapegoat, go away. You're not wanted here. Leave, leave. This, this text, one scholar says, is full of terror. This text tells us, what life is like when we choose to determine right and wrong in our own eyes. Life becomes a frenzied death struggle where the powerful oppress the weak. The mockery and the torture of the innocent and righteous son of God are not meant to make sense at all. Rather, they are, this is meant to shatter sense. These verses show the irrationality of human depravity. These verses show what happens when selfish, strong people act in the name of freedom to oppress others. And I have to do a self-audit when I read these verses, asking myself, well, when have I teased a dehydrated soul with sour wine? When have I extended mockery when mercy was needed most? Oh, maybe not on the outside. I know how to act on the outside. I'm a minister. But deep in the recesses of my heart, a heart that never goes unnoticed by the Lord, when have I egotistically tried to get the, other, the upper hand over another? Hmm. Did you ever read William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Flies? I read that in grade school. It's the story of uh, how British boys stranded on an island tried to govern themselves with disastrous consequences. And at the conclusion, surveying the carnage and the death that took place, one of the boys... Well, here's the quote. We did everything adults would do. What went wrong? This has got to get better. And were it not for one word, we wouldn't have an Easter. You know that. You see the word there? It's the most repeated word in the text. (laughs) This word that allows us to celebrate, that allows us to sing, allows us to receive communion. There's no Easter without this word. I I, I can't believe I've read this passage over and over and over. I, I... I overlooked this word. This week, though, I had help and I saw it. There it is. Did you see it? You see the word? It's the word and. And. And behold, when Christ yielded his spirit in death, an explosion of supernatural activity occurs signifying no ordinary death. And, and the curtain was torn. And the earth was shaken. And the rocks were torn. Torn, same word as curtain. <laughs> it takes God no more effort to tear a rock than it does to tear a curtain. Torn. and, and, and. And the, the curtain which veiled israel 's most sacred space, the Holy of Holies, was was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the ripping had been initiated from above, and the earth shaken, and the rocks ripped, signifying a cosmological uh, upheaval. an old order is passing away, and behold, all things are new, and note the passive voice was torn was shaken was torn that's the divine passive you see the god about whom we assume is aloof and absent is in fact very much at work listen just because you can't see god at work doesn't mean he's not at work he is the sovereign god of the almighty and and we're not done, verse 52. And the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many, many, not two or three, many bodies, not ghosts, not spirits, but bodies. Christianity is the most material faith on earth because. God made bodies. These bodies, the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. What is Matthew telling us here? Does Matthew expect us to believe this to be actual history? How curious. Stay open. Stay open. So I, I, I came across a fascinating book by a professor named Richard Borkham. It's called Jesus and the eyewitnesses. And, and he argues for a type of history called testimony. Testimony as a unique means of accessing historical reality. And here was the takeaway quote here. This is what he says. An irreducible feature of testimony is that it asks to be trusted. Not, not uncritically. But thoughtfully, we, we think through reasons to stand on the genuine testimony of a witness. And then Borkham reminds the reader, when you think about it, all history and all knowledge relies on testimony. So what is Matthew's testimony? Testimony. Well, look, it says, the many appeared to many. So a widow comes home. After a day in the marketplace, she's trying to scrape a living. Her godly husband has prematurely died. She opens the door, and there at the dining room table, and. A husband and wife ache at the loss of their daughter and come home from work together, open the door. There she is. And a son whose father died before he was born always carried this this father ache, aching for someone he'd never met, And parents, parents receiving back their children. Uh, Caleb, Brent, Amanda, Bob, Stephanie, Nani, Chuck, and And I know there are questions. I know. I know. I mean, like, well, what's Matthew saying? Were they raised to life at the crucifixion but required to wait until Jesus' resurrection to come out? I mean, let's go there for a minute. I mean, you've been there. No, you've been there. Like our little children at Christmas, stay in your room until I say, you can come out on Christmas morning. Stay stay in that tomb. You can't come out until Jesus comes out. I don't know. Matthew seems to testify that the saints were raised after Christ was raised because Christ is the first fruits of them that are raised. And, and of course, there are more questions. I know, I've asked them, well, did they stay alive or did they die a second time? Was it kind of a, like a Lazarus thing or did they ascend with Jesus or how long did they stay alive? What happened? Come on, you know what? Matthew's not talking. He will not satisfy our curiosity and his ambiguity frustrates us. Oh, Americans do not like ambiguity. We want to know what the plan is. What's the schedule? <laughs> Matthew just snickers, he giggles, and he's not talking. He's not talking. Besides, could you really, can you really respect a God that you can figure out? What we must not do is find ourselves so fascinated by their resurrections that we overlook the resurrection. And the gospels are clear about these facts concerning Christ's resurrection. Fact one, Jesus died on a cross. Fact two, on the Sunday morning after his resurrection, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of female followers. Fact three, various individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Fact four, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite having nearly every predisposition to the contrary. I like how Professor Paula Fredrickson of Hebrew University put it. She wrote, What propelled the new movement was the conviction of Jesus' earliest followers that he had been raised from the dead. And Matthew's point pertains to the saving effect of Christ's death. Christ's saving death reached into those tombs. These saints lived because that man died. They exited their tombs because of the one whose destiny was the tomb. And Matthew, in his present, reaches back into the past of his heritage and echoes the prophet Ezekiel, whose words we heard earlier, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. And raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And Matthew seems giddy with joy. I mean, he he just can't wait to testify to the final moment when God will remake the heavens and the earth, and it's just as possible That he had you in mind, holy ones, when he wrote these verses. Because isn't that who we are in Christ? And isn't this what Christ has promised? For only saints enter the holy city. And how can we be called saints? Oh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We can exit our tomb because of the one who entered the tomb, Matthew Tells us our destiny in Christ. Matthew bestows on us the gift of perceptual fluency. Yes, perceptual fluency. A few years ago, researchers from the University of California in San Diego wrote a paper called Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories. It was a research project. They got the grant for this. Over this question. Will knowing up front what's going to happen at the end of the story spoil your experience of the story? And they use well-known authors, John Updike, Ag- Agatha Christie, Here's what they learned. Participants most enjoyed the stories with the spoiler at the beginning, even when the story ended with an unexpected twist or there was a murder mystery. You know why they enjoyed it? Perceptual fluency, that's why. Perceptual fluency is the ease by which People process information. Knowing the end of the story at the start of the story takes away the impatience factor. Knowing the end of the story at the start of the story helps you enjoy the plot instead of waiting impatiently to find out, well, you know, that so-and-so killed so-and-so and this and that and the other thing. Knowing the end at the beginning allows the readers to just relax and process the story. And pay attention to the story's deeper meanings. Perceptual fluency. I experienced that last Sunday. I'm driving home from church, I was tired. I Had luncheon afterwards. This is between 2.30 and 3. I thought to myself, okay, good, I'll get to watch a replay of the Masters. And I'll get to see if Tiger Woods won. Thankfully, no one at church spoiled it for me. Good, thank you. So I'm in the car on my way home for that lengthy nine-minute commute. I thought, well, you know, I've got got a hands-free system. I'll call my mom because I call her. I call her... I call her Sunday morning before I come here, 6 a.m. She's 86. She's been up an hour. <laughs> I'll call her on the way home, just check in with her. So I do. I call her, Hey, Mom, how's it going? First words out of her mouth. Can you believe Tiger Woods won? <laughs> Yes, Mom, I can believe that he won. I just did not know that he had won. She attends first service at her church. But you know what? I watched it anyway, and I really enjoyed it. You know why? Perceptual fluency. That's it. It is the death of Jesus that triggers our resurrection. And hear me, church family, if this is our future, and it is, in Christ, and that future is a forever future with new bodies, a new earth, the end of sin, the end of death, resurrected body on a resurrected earth, worshiping and serving a resurrected Christ, what can't you survive knowing that? Cancer? Divorce? Bankruptcy? Bankruptcy? Deception, abandonment, conviction, prison term, death. Matthew testifies to holy ones walking in the holy city, carried along by a sovereign, holy, almighty and. Never overlook the power of and. We, we are the most hopeful people on the planet. Change is possible look at verse 54 the centurion and those with him the day who just moments before had mocked and scoffed are now flooded with great awe and faith really the centurion cries really he is the son of god son of god that was a title for caesar the centurion's commander in chief, but then the centurion realizes who the true commander in chief is, because you know Caesar's power only allows him to put people into tombs, cannot bring him out. This is the true Caesar. This is the true Caesar. And the, the first, is Matthew wants us to know. Matthew's testimony is that the first to see Jesus for who He is was the man who put Him to death. Matthew intends for us to know that the executioner was the first believer. There is life for those who put their faith in Christ's death. As Jesus himself said in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That's us. Happy Easter. Amen? Yeah. I read about anything William Lane Craig writes. He's a wonderful thinker. He, he teaches about you know, why we believe what we believe regarding Christianity. and In one of his many books, William Lane Craig wrote about a friend named Tom Tom used to make it his habit to visit shut-ins in nursing homes to just bring some love and cheer. And one day, he met a woman named Mabel. He never forgot her. Mabel, 89 years old, bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. Tom put a flower in her hand and said, Mabel, here's a flower for you. And she held the flower up to her face. She tried to smell it. But then with a clear mind, her mind was clear, but her body just didn't cooperate. She spoke garbled words. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see. You know, I'm blind. And Tom said, well, of course. And they found someone, and Mabel held the flower out and said, here, this is from Jesus. And Tom and Mabel became friends over the next few years. And and Tom began to realize that he was not the one helping Mabel, she was the one helping him. And on one visit, Tom asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here all day? Oh, Mabel said, I think about Jesus. Well, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, she said, I I just think about how good he's been to me. I'm one of those kind that's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. And then she started singing this hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Tom writes, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, Tom testifies A human being really lived like this. Tom says, I know. I knew her. I was there. How could she do it? For days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening, she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? And Tom says, the answer I believe, is that Mabel had something that many people don't have much of. Mabel had power. Power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Power fueled by the great Sovereign, Almighty, and church family, your grave may be deep, your tomb may be deep, your hurt may be deep, your grief may be deep, and Christ is deeper still. Amen.